So, Mom, let's talk about how we do this in our family, how we clarify and how we do it in a way that's non-judgmental. First of all, you have to convince yourself that they're not doing something to aggravate you. I had heard of the word autism, but I, I knew it existed. I didn't really know what the characteristics of it were. I didn't know enough about it to even know how to even consider a child being autistic or anyone else for that matter. In terms of communication, what do you see when you look back, how that would have impacted you as a teacher? First of all, I feel like I need to apologize to anyone who is neurodiverse who is in my classroom <laughs> because I feel terrible now. Okay, so today I have a really special guest that I'm excited to, to talk to today on the show, and that is my mother. And you may have heard me mention her if you've been following me and listening to my uh, podcast or video casts, but she lives with us here with my family. And so she moved in with us. She's 76 and she's a widow. And she moved in with us here in 2020 in the middle of COVID and lives with us. And, and we love having her here. And anyway, so she's been on this journey of discovery about autism with my family since my daughter, Abby, was diagnosed when she was five. And so she's been learning a lot about autism and neurodiversity along with us and has a lot of insight and observations from her perspective. She's a retired teacher, and, and I'd love for her to share today some of her insights as she looks back on that. But also, we've discovered along the way that family members of our own that we realized are autistic. And so I'm excited to have her here to just chat with me about that. So, Mom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So, okay, let's just start with, let's just go back in time. My listeners have heard me talk about Abby a lot. And those of you who are new and maybe haven't heard me talk about Abby, she's my 19-year-old daughter who is a rising college sophomore at the moment. And she's really who got me started on this whole journey of understanding autism in my career as a, a counselor originally, and now with you guys who are listening. So let's back up though. And what are some things that you remember? But before we go there, this is a series this summer about neurodiverse communication and relationships. Communication is that bridge and there are missing segments. We have missing segments in that bridge, the communication falters and we have different languages. So looking back, when you think back to when Abby was diagnosed, what are some of the things that you remember about, we knew nothing really as a family, we knew nothing about autism. What are some things that you remember about that time period and just even observations that you have through the years as you've learned about autism? To start off with, when Abby was born, I had heard of the word autism. I, I knew it existed. I didn't really know what the characteristics of it were. I didn't, I didn't know enough about it to even know how to even consider a child being autistic or anyone else for that matter. And I had two babies and you had had none. So I had something to compare it to. And when she was beginning to get three, four, five months old, to start with, I noticed that she didn't smile. She didn't respond back to interaction. She didn't start cooing when I felt like she should have. And then I noticed also really early on 
that when I would give her a bottle, she would twist her head so that she could see the ceiling fan going around. Mm -hmm. And no matter which way I held her, she wanted to be able to look at that ceiling fan. And I didn't know the word perseveration back then either. And she would do the same thing when she was watching uh, some TV shows. You could put her in her little seat in front of the TV. And she, I believe, would have stayed there for hours if you had let her. But yeah, I remember, you know, I want to just jump in. So she yes. was stimming, her, her brain was stimming on the, the rotation of the ceiling fan and the visual stimulation of the TV. And that perseveration, she would get stuck on that and, and would really get upset if we if we took that stimulus away from her. Yes. And those, yeah, those were things that, that I definitely had no idea was, I didn't know that was unusual. Cause like you said, I didn't have a baby. Right. I didn't ha- had no comparison. But as she got older and she would not, she really wouldn't communicate with you in any way, laugh, cut up, respond. I think her first laugh was when some noises were being made and she was focusing on those. But as she got older, she was very difficult. And you may have covered this in some other traits of her, but she had a lot of trouble eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, feeding her, when she would come to my house and I would put her in her high chair and feed her, it would take just a little small bowl of food. It might take 30 minutes because more of it squeezed back out her mouth than would stay in her mouth because she didn't want it in her mouth. Right. And I want to just jump in there. So that's a sensory difference. And so many of the people who come to me are my age. I'm 50 this year. I'm 50 this month in in a few weeks. And I remember. (laughs) Yes, you were there. Um, And so many people in my program are in their 40s and 50s and even 60s. And they're just now realizing that someone is newer diverse in their relationship. And it's because a grandchild or a, a, one of their adult children have been diagnosed formally or, or they're figuring all of this out. And when I ask them, they come to me for, for clarification. They think this is the, what it is. They come to me to help them, you know, confirm that's what they're seeing. And I ask them about these sensory differences and I ask them about food preferences. You're talking about Abby struggling to eat. And oh yes, we had tremendous difficulties. She couldn't tolerate textures of foods had to be pureed until she was two years old and gagged on foods and and was underweight and was extremely picky eater all through her her childhood and had to have eating therapy and it was really tough but when I ask my adult clients who are 50 60 years old if they're a picky eater most of them say no but when I when I explore that more I'll find out oftentimes that they don't consider themselves picky eaters now, but it's because they have 100% control over what they eat now as an adult. And so they've, over the decades, they've developed routines about what they eat. And sometimes their spouse will say, wait a minute, hold on. You do have a very narrow range of what you will eat and you don't like mushy textures or you don't like slimy textures or you don't like spicy foods or you really love spicy foods. You're constantly piling on the hot sauce. It's one extreme or the other, but a lot of people don't really recognize that as being a difference because now as an adult, they can control it. But when I ask them about their childhood and I say, what about when you were a kid? And and a lot of them will say, oh, I actually had a a guest on my podcast 
a few episodes back. His name was Bo. And he said, oh, I used to drive my dad nuts because I, I didn't want to eat what was on my plate. And I, I, I would, I don't remember his exact words, but a lot of my clients will say, oh yeah, I would sit there for hours and my parents would try to force me to eat stuff and I couldn't stand it. Like Abby, she would gag. She would literally gag on food. Right. And my clients will say, I couldn't deal with it. And my parents just thought I was being uh, stubborn. And really it was a sensory difference. There were two other issues that I remember specifically. One was when I taught school, it was primarily first grade. And all first graders love to, when you clean their desk off and put chocolate pudding on it, they love to finger paint in the chocolate pudding. And I remember Abby would refuse to do that. She did not want any of her food on her hands. And she didn't want to. And I thought that's, that's really odd. And one other instance that comes to mind is years ago, I used to sew a lot. And so I love to make little girl outfits. So I picked out a pretty little seersucker plaid and I thought I'll make her a pretty little sundress with this. And I made it, took it to her. She immediately wanted to put it on. We were actually in the car when I gave it to her. She actually changed clothes in the car to put it on. But then a little bit later, we discovered she didn't want to wear it. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know why. And we asked her, she said, it itches, it scratches. And I realized that the seersucker was actually an irritant to her skin, that it just, the texture of it just did not work for her. So I yeah, never made her another seersucker. And so for the people who are listening who have no idea what fabrics, what that means, I don't even know how you describe seersucker, but it's like a little. It has tiny little puffs built into the cloth mm-hmm. that they stick out a little bit does make it a little rough. I just hadn't thought about that. And that's another example of a sensory difference. So that's a texture difference. And so a lot of people with those texture differences, sensory sensitivities, they'll struggle with textures of clothing against their skin. Tags in clothing will really bother them. Yes. Beams on clothes or socks will bother them. And, and even sheets, the texture of, of sheets or comforter, those types of textures will really bother them. And so those are the types of things we definitely saw in Abby. Even as adults, as we develop and grow, our brains start to regulate better over time. So those types of differences may have been there as a child. All of us have some type of sensory differences, but it becomes a sensory processing disorder or what we call A lot of people struggle with the word disorder, but when it becomes problematic for an individual, we think of it more of a disorder. If it really interferes with your ability to socialize, to go to people's houses and and have dinner with them because you can't tolerate the foods that other people serve, that's problematic. And that's what we would consider disordered. But that brings me to communication, because if that is a problem, it's important for all of us. This, This is why Autism awareness is so important and education is so important so that those of us who are neurotypical can learn that people who are not neurotypical have these legitimate differences that are not behavioral. This is not just being behavioral. This is not just picky. This is not just being demanding and and rude. This is literally a neurological brain difference. And so if someone says, I can't eat that, and they're coming to your home, 
we need to make our world more accepting of people whose brains make it difficult to eat certain textures of, of food. Or if they only want to wear certain types of clothes, we don't need to push them to wear something that makes them so uncomfortable that it's like having a thorn, like, like that seersucker dress that you made her. It's, it's like forcing her to wear something that's like a thorn scratching her constantly all day long. I also saw not maybe in Abby as much as some of the children I taught, people who want to wear a sweater all the time, regardless of the temperature, or people who refuse to wear a sweater or a jacket because they either may be more secure, safe, they like the snug feeling. I've seen people who wear hoodies mm -hmm. and they want that hoodie over their head. There's something about being wrapped up, that, and I'm sure you probably seeing this in a lot of people that you've worked with as well. So it, a lot of these things do go on to adulthood. Oh, yes. I've seen it certainly in my own children and seen it a lot in their friends, but then also in other adults too. It, even in the, the, the adults in my life, in, in terms of clothing, Abby's brother, Aiden, has a lot of sensory differences. He's not autistic, but he has a lot of sensory differences, which by the way, for those of you who are listening, when autism is in the family, when neurodiversity is in the family, sensory processing differences is also always there. Both of these are genetic. So you're going to see family members with sensory differences. Now, some of them with the sensory differences are not going to be autistic, but everyone who's autistic will have sensory differences. So if you're autistic, you're going to have sensory differences, but you can have the sensory without the autism. So, so my son, Aiden, he has a lot of sensory differences. And so he, as a baby, he was one of those babies that really loved being cocooned and wrapped up really super tight. And that calmed him a lot. Even to this day, he's knee bouncing <laughs> as, as we'll sit on our back deck and his knee is bouncing so much that we, it feels like the back deck is going to come walking <laughs> off of the house. And that's a stem. That's a sensory stem. It's a sensory seeking behavior. He bites his nails. That's also a sensory seeking behavior. He also doesn't like to mix his food. Yeah. He likes yeah. to eat foods individually on his plate. Both kids don't mix their food. And he also is one that really does not like strong flavors at all. He will eat a baked potato with no butter, no salt, no pepper, just dry. <laughs> and the rest of us are like, that's <laughs> but we accept it. And that's something in our family. And, and that's something I'd like for you, you to speak on too. Okay. In our family, we have some major differences in our sensory needs and preferences, but we've all really had to learn to accept everybody as just unique and different. And so let's talk about how that works in terms of how we accept each other and how we communicate those differences to each other. What are your thoughts on that? I think first of all, you have to identify the differences. And because if I don't know what they are, I won't understand the difference. I do it this way. Why? That's odd. Why do you do it that way? And it puts them on the spot to try to be defensive and explain why they do it that way when to them it's perfectly normal or it, it's just the accepted way. It's the way they do it. And so I think sometimes we want to try to force somebody else 
to do it like us because it just, maybe it's better manners, maybe it's better, more acceptable in public. And you don't want to single them out, but you don't understand why they choose to do it that way. And like, like wearing a jacket or something, aren't you cold or I'm burning up? Why don't you take your sweater off? And I have to mention here that when I was teaching school, I was not familiar with autism. I started teaching in the sixties and finally retired eventually in 2000. And in the beginning, I'm sure I had children in my classroom who were autistic and I did not know it. And they were probably classified as uncooperative. Mm -hmm. And I probably made them do things that they were very uncomfortable doing simply because I didn't understand that they were neurodiverse. I didn't know that term until just a few years ago, probably after you started working with neurodiverse people. Mm -hmm. And so I can think back some children that later in life knew they were autistic or neurodiverse. And I think back about, I, I even have specific instances where I had a little boy one time, I sent him to the library and he got lost going to a place that he'd been to dozens of times. And another teacher found him and brought him back to the room to me. And I'm sure I fussed at him for, why didn't you go to the library? What were you doing in the lunchroom or something like that? And I didn't understand that part of it was language that I may not have explained it clearly where they could understand what I was asking them to do, because this is something I've discovered with Abby that sometimes I will ask her a question and she won't know what I'm talking about. The other day, I was referring to a child in a restaurant that was cutting up. You witnessed this. And this was just very recently. And she's 19 now, but she said, what do you mean? And I said, he was cutting up. He was doing things he shouldn't be doing. And I said, he was not behaving at the table. And well, for her first impression was, I think was, what was he cutting up? Mm -hmm. His placement or what was he cutting? Very literal. Yes, very literal. So you have to identify, first of all, that some of their terms and their language may not be the same as what you use. And also there is a generational gap. I'm not sure that people use the word that much with children. Oh, he was cutting up. And, you know, definitely generational. Some of the folks here are not from the South. That's probably a, a yeah, it's generational probably and a Southern, Southern word. Yes. But definitely a word that even my son, who's not autistic, probably hasn't heard. But being able to generalize the term based on context. Yes. He likely, I think he was even present in that conversation, would, would have figured that out. And the thing is, Abby is extremely intelligent. She's, this has nothing to do with intelligence. This is part of the language barrier. I'm constantly talking about how we speak different languages, neurodiverse and neurotypical. We, we use language differently and it has nothing to do with intelligence. Abby is an honor student. She graduated with honors from high school. She's just made the Dean's list two semesters in a row in college. She's very intelligent. I don't even know her IQ, but in some areas, she's like her musical intelligence is much higher than the yeah. average individual. And there are other areas in her IQ, different types of IQ that she's more intelligent than most. So it really has nothing to do with intelligence. It's the way 
language is used. And I actually want to mention, I'm glad you brought that up about you the teaching because she, Abby's always been an advocate of autism. Asperger's was what, what it was called when she was first diagnosed. She used to do video casting a little bit. She did little video blogs when she was in middle school. And there was one that she did. She's got a pretty big sense of humor and laughs a lot at herself even. And even though sometimes she doesn't get the joke, she'll laugh later once she gets it. And there was one video blog that you've probably seen and remember that she did when I was cleaning the fish tank one time and I noticed the fish were dodging my little net and they were trying to take cover in the the plants in the fish tank. And I said to her, I said, the fish are playing hide and seek from me today. Yes. And she stopped and said, why would fish play hide and seek, mom? And I was like, oh, no, they're just they're hiding from me. And she's like, oh, and she did a whole video blog about how she took takes things so literally sometimes. And so I can imagine as a teacher and you taught grades first, first grade most of the time, which yes. to my my overseas listeners, this that's around age six. But you taught all the way up through fourth grade, which is how old is that? About 10? Yes. Ish. So how, let's just, in terms of communication, what do you see when you look back, how that would have impacted you as a teacher and, and them as students, their experience growing up? First of all, I feel like I need to apologize to anyone who is neurodiverse who was in my classroom. <laughs> Because I feel terrible now. It's, oh my gosh, it's so clear now as to what was going on. But I think I would have to first adapt the way I talk to them, further explanation or maybe visuals to illustrate what I want them to do, to show them how to do it first before, especially like maybe an art project or something. But just to explain things in more detail to them. And to be on guard that I am not using words that are colloquial words that have meaning to me, but might not to them. We had a teacher in a class one day and that she was joking with one of the students. And so the student was answering her back. And some of your listeners may not be familiar with this phrase either, but she said, oh, you're just pulling my leg, which means you're joking me. And he looked at her and he jumped back and he said, Lady, I'm not touching your leg. Yeah. And, and, and she had to explain to him because she realized then he didn't know what she was talking about. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you catch yourself doing that. And I catch myself with Abby still a good bit because she's just, she's not familiar with that use of the word. And so she absolutely does not know how to respond. She'll give me a blank look and she'll say, I don't know what you're talking about, or I don't know what you're asking. So let's talk about how we communicate, how we've learned what we do in our family and how we've developed that. Because what I teach in, in my communication program, one of the most important things that I teach is clarification. Because when there's that misunderstanding, now with Abby, because she's grown up with us and she's comfortable looking at us with that blank stare of, of I don't know what you mean. It's a different dynamic than in a domestic partnership, a, a spouse, a girlfriend. Those of you who are listening, if you believe that you are neurodiverse or you believe your partner is and you're married and you have children, then the chances of you having 
children or parents or siblings that are neurodiverse is very high. So you're also having these interactions with, with others. You're communicating with others. So this whole idea of communication is really important. And learning how to clarify meaning is critical. So mom, what are some things that you know that we, what do we, let's talk about how we do this in our family, how we clarify and how we do it in a way that's non-judgmental. First of all, you have to convince yourself that they're not doing something to aggravate you. I can see how that would especially be in adult relationships. If they're just, it's hard to explain because the more you are around them, the more you learn how to talk to them. And in our family, sometimes I'll say something and you'll actually say, I don't think she understood what you meant. And I appreciate that because I'm still sitting there sometimes in a fog myself saying, what did she not understand that I just said? We used to call some of the things that she said, Abbeyisms, mm -hmm. uh, because they were so off base. To a neurotypical. Yes. To she, a neurotypical. she would have such literal expressions of, about something. Yes. yes. To our neurotypical interpretation. It, it was cute. And she'd laugh about it too. Once we, right. we explain our neurotypical way. And I can't think of something off the top of my head, unfortunately. I think probably you can talk to her better than any of us because you understand a neurotypical, I mean, a neurodiverse person so well. And if I sense that she doesn't understand what I'm saying, I try more often to be aware to express it in a different way. And to use as simple as language, sometimes almost as I would with a, a child in school, to not skip any steps in trying to say what I'm trying to say, make it as clear, as, as clearly stated as possible. Mm -hmm. And I want to emphasize that you saying that it's how you would speak to like you would a child, that's not an insult at no, all. Not at all. I literally just had this conversation yesterday and he is the one that's autistic and she said on the call and he agreed she said i realize that i need to be very explicit when i'm asking him or telling him what i'd like to be done or when i'm requesting something those of us who are neurotypical we have a lot of implied and inferred meaning in the way we communicate it's part of our language and other neurotypicals receive the implied and inferred meaning so we don't have to say it out loud it's just already there i speak it and to another neurotypical it's received whereas someone who's neurodiverse doesn't receive does not speak that in, inferred and implied language that part of the language and so my client yesterday said i realize now that i have to be very literal and specific about what I'm asking, requesting, stating, and break it into steps that's not natural for a neurotypical. It's not natural for us. But if I don't, our spouse, our partner, or in my case, my child, your grandchild, may miss what we're communicating. Also, I think the manner in which you express what you're saying because if you're frustrated in the least and you sound like you're putting them down or you're being derogatory on how they received it, then that person is going to feel like 
I'm doing the best I can, but I don't understand what you're saying. I'm not trying to be difficult. Whereas the person speak, they're not needing to put the other person down, but sometimes it could almost be funny that they don't understand what you're saying and you just assume everybody understands that. You don't want to say what's wrong with you because nothing is wrong with them. I'm glad you said that because I do hear those words come out of a lot of people's mouths. What is wrong with you? Yeah, I've heard that. And I've heard that in my Facebook group. I've heard a neurotypical partner say, I don't understand what is wrong with him or, or what is wrong with her. Because when someone is different from us and different from what we're used to, it feels like they're the abnormal one. And, and we do use the word neurotypical, but that's because the vast majority of the typical, when, when we look at numbers, just numbers, the larger population falls under this neurotypical profile, neurological profile. But that doesn't make the neurodiverse individuals who are in the lower numbers something wrong with their neurological profile. It's just they're different. And I think you're so right about that, that we have to, to pause. And first of all, like you said, recognize there's not intent there. There's no intent to try to cause an issue. There's no intent to be difficult. You're not trying to start an argument. No, it's just misunderstanding. And But, but like you said, too, identifying first that there's a potential communication breakdown here and knowing that we're neurodiverse to start with. We know that in our family. We already yeah. know that. And we have a respect for each other and our differences in the way our brains work. And we have different kinds of brains in our family. We've got um, Abby's autistic, Aiden's not autistic, but has sensory differences and auditory processing differences. And I, I can't hear half the time. I can't, we, we just got back from an audiology appointment for my daughter and she's hearing great. We know I can't hear when there's background noises and and we all have our stuff and we just are respectful of one another. Talking about family, as my mother aged, it became more apparent to me, probably because I was becoming more educated about the topic, that I think we realized that something was different. Something was neurodiverse about her. Mm -hmm. I suspect it was autism, the way she would communicate sometimes the way she would take things that were said. There were just a lot of things. We never approached her about it because she was aging. And I don't think we would have gotten very far with it if we had ever pointed out. Oh, no, we, we wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about her because, as I said before, this is genetic. And so yes. many people, once they realize neurodiversity is present and they start looking at Okay, so we're going to stop there for today's episode. So be sure to tune in next week as my mother and I continue to talk about my grandmother and other family members that we discovered and suspect are also autistic. And, you know, I know that a lot of you are relating to what we're talking about because I hear your stories all the time. I've been listening to your stories for a huge portion of my entire career and it's just so common because the thing is autism, neurodiversity, it's just everywhere. It's all around us. It's in your lives. It's in your 
families, it's in your, your households, it's in your jobs. Autism is a part of our world, and the more that we can learn about it, the more that we can understand it, and we can close this gap in communication and bridge this uh, divide between us so that we can understand each other and improve our relationships with all the people in our lives, not just with our domestic partners. If you haven't listened to the last two episodes that I had with my two children, I really encourage you to go back. I've gotten a ton of feedback about it. They talked about their relationship as siblings. My daughter's autistic. My son is not. We talked about our neurodiverse family. But also, we have these relationships with our parents. I have them with my child. I have them with my best friend and other people in my life, coworkers. And so the goal here is to bridge that communication gap. Start having this conversation with the people in your life, with your family members and your friendships and whoever those people may be. So see you next week.